Everybody, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to chapter 10, starting in verse 21. I just want to say about the year and gift. I sat with a pastor this week who, he's a leader of a predominantly African-American church that we've partnered with some, and his building got sold um, to a developer so that uh, Madison could build some of the 40,000 um, units that they're trying to build the next 10 years in the, in, the, in the state of Wisconsin for new people moving into the state. Um, churches also that are dwindling are just getting gobbled up and being turned into apartment buildings. Right now, um, in the last few weeks, a church that has um, shrunk in size to no longer being viable has voted to give us their building. Our elders are considering whether to receive that building as a gift and to bring it to the congregation for a vote. But the main thing that we're going to be looking at is whether or not we're financially in a good enough place as a church to make sure that we can take care of that building so that we can open up to this African-American-led congregation to be one of the two congregations that will meet in that building. And so just as you think about how sacrificially you want to give and how much you want to get behind what not just this local church is doing, but what we're doing in the city and with other churches and in the city of Madison, I hope you'll consider some of the stuff that we're doing because the elders are going to be are very judicious about this. They're not going to do it if we can't. And can't or can is going to come down to how much we give together so that we can do these things. So as you, as you pray about this, as you think about it, I hope you'll consider giving generously to the year-end gift and in your weekly giving. All right. I'm going to read this passage. You're going to think to yourself, Nick, this doesn't sound like a Christmas sermon. And I promise you, I promise, I reasonably assure you that by the end of the sermon, it will feel like a Christmas sermon, okay? Verse 21. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews were there, gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. I grew up in uh, rural New York uh, as a kid, and I did not really bump into a lot of Jewish people until I went to a state university in New York, where there are plenty of Jewish people. And it was during my fall semester that I, like, interacted with people celebrating Hanukkah for the first time, right? Now, sometime later, I'd done married a Jewish girl and ended up in a Jewish family and been his, I've been celebrating Hanukkah ever since. Now, for those of you that don't know much about Hanukkah, um, 
See if you can advance that, guys. In its modern celebration, there's a number of things, including wonderful foods like potato latkes and stuff like that. But also there's like a crosswind because of the blowers in here, which I think was designed so that if anybody next to you passes gas, it gets blown away within three or four seconds <laughs> so that you have a good experience at church. But um, it may mean these candles will not stay lit. But the, um, the central celebration of Hanukkah is the—they call it—it's literally called the Festival of Lights, if you've ever heard that Adam Sandler song. And um, the main part of it is the lighting of candles, right? And you, you start with one, you light one more every day for eight days, and then you have one candle that is referred to as the servant that lights all the others, right? Okay. And so this is—well, that one's really getting at it, right? Um, this is sort of the um, central celebration of Hanukkah. And if you ask somebody, hey, what's, what's the story here? What are we celebrating? What, you'll be told this some version like this. Um, generally speaking, this is the common man's street version, right? Um, back when the Jews re-entered the temple at some point, they were dedicating the temple, and they, um, they relit the candle abra that represented the presence of God, that God was with his people and present in his temple, right? It was a, it was a six-armed candle abra, and they only found one jar of oil that had been sealed by the high priest, um, and they, they used it to light the candelabra, but it was going to be seven more days until they could get more oil. And so the candelabra should have burned out, but there was this miracle where it actually lasted seven more days and burned eight total days until new oil could be brought and refilled so that the light of God's presence never stopped burning in this temple when it was rededicated. And it symbolizes the fact that God is with his believing people, right? Which is a really cool thing. Because in, uh, in the ancient world, right, we, they didn't really use wax because they, they didn't—they had olives instead of bees. And so they used these lamps, right? And so a, a lamp in the ancient world, you filled it with oil, you put a wick in it, and then you would light it, and it would burn for quite a while, right? Almost—and you could relight it, and it was basically how people did light. And so the idea is, is that Hanukkah is this festival of light where the light of God doesn't go out. It shines on its people because God is present and with them. Does that make sense? Now— at some point, I bumped into the fact that there's only one place in the entire New Testament where the celebration of Hanukkah is mentioned. And because it's translated literally from the Hebrew, it's just called in your Bible the Feast of Dedication. Because the word Hanukkah doesn't mean light in Hebrew. It means dedication. It's the festival of dedication. And in John's Gospel, some commentators are like, this is really dumb the way John writes this because it's just stuck in there together with um, the festival of booths. It's like the festival of booths doesn't even end. He talks about himself being the shepherd of God's shepherd in the festival of booths, and then all of a sudden it's the feats of dedication. He's still talking about being God's shepherd. This is like two months apart, but like John treats them like they're one thing. Well, in the book of 2 Maccabees, when Hanukkah is instituted, right, Judas Maccabeus says it is to be celebrated as Sukkot, together with it in the same way. So in the Second Temple Jewish mind, the, the festival of booths, where God dedicated a place for his people— is connected to Hanukkah, where God rededicated a place for himself with his people. And for the rest of that Second Temple period, these were seen as nearly one celebration. And so for John, to put Jesus as shepherd in both of them and put them together actually fits a lot better than you might think. Now, when I was trying to make sense of Jesus celebrating Hanukkah and whether I should celebrate Hanukkah, since I'm a Gentile married into a Jewish family, what does that mean, right? Um, I was interested, like, what was Hanukkah like for Jesus, right? Because a lot of the stuff in modern-day Hanukkah, like dreidels, came from, like, 1800s Europe, right? 
um, and not like from the time of Jesus. Jesus and, and his brothers didn't spin dreidels for Hanukkah guild, right? So what was it like for him? And so as you look at the history of Hanukkah, Hanukkah shows up in four ancient sources. There's a series of books called the Apocrypha, which is the a, way, a Greek word for questionable writings, or writings we're not 100% sure of the author of. And so they're not con- part of our Bible, but most of them fall in what's called the intertestamental period between the end of Malachi in the Old Testament and the beginning of Matthew in the New Testament. There's this 400-year period, which people call the period of silence sometimes, which is kind of silly because God is doing a bunch of stuff in that 400 years. It's just not in your Bible, okay? The Apocrypha was written mostly during that time, and First and Second Maccabees happens during that time. 200 years after 1st and 2nd Maccabees, there's a writer named Josephus who writes after the fall of the temple. He was alive for the fall of the temple in Israel in 70 AD. So he's like late first century. And then there's another document called the Babylonian Talmud, which comes about in like 700 years after Jesus, but some of the material comes from maybe 400 years after Jesus, okay? So the Maccabean revolt is in the, is in 160 BC. And so 1st and 2nd Maccabees are from 150 years before Jesus. Josephus is like 200, or I'm sorry, 150 years before Jesus, about the time when this happened. Josephus is like 200 years later, and the Babylonian Talmud is like 600 years later, the earliest, okay? There is no mention of the miracle of the oil until the Babylonian Talmud. None at all. Josephus, 200 years after, calls it a festival of light. It's referred to as a festival of light. And then he tries to speculate, why would that be? Why would it be called a festival of light? He has no idea there's a story of oil because probably there isn't one yet. And he says, it's because this situation was so dire for the Jewish people, and we were under so much tyranny, that when we actually found ourselves in freedom, in liberty, it was like the sun of liberty had shone out of the bleakest darkness on our people. And so we celebrate it with light, right? He has no idea that there's a a miracle of oil. When you go back to the Maccabees, there's no mention of anything like that. Now, this is why this is important. For Jesus, and I think historically, and so for me when I celebrate Hanukkah, I don't really celebrate the miracle of the oil, though it is a festival of light, because there was an absolutely unforeseen shining of the light of liberty on the people of God when they were about to be annihilated as a people. It turns out, if we read the history of it, it's not, it's not a miracle of oil. It's a miracle of the sword. The story of Hanukkah is about a war. In about, one, in about 167 BC, um, the Jewish people were being ruled over by the Seleucids, which was a, a group of, of like Hellenized, um, like Turkish Greeks. Um, remember, uh, Alexander, 40 years BC, um, unites like basically from part of Europe all the way to part of India. Hellenizes or Greekifies everything, okay? Ultimately, he dies. It breaks up into four pieces. The largest one is the Seleucid Empire. It literally goes from part of Europe all the way to the Indus. It is the largest and greatest empire of its time. Israel falls within that group. They grow increasingly tired of people who don't fall in line with being Greek. Being Greek holds the whole empire together. And what all the Greek youths do is they all go to the gymnasium. They learn all the Greek stuff. They learn how to Greek wrestle. They learn the Greek philosophy. They learn Greek governance. They learn Greek democracy. And then they come into positions of power in the Greek world. And this is how it works. And meanwhile, the Jews, who are part of this kingdom, still have their stupid temple. And they keep doing their Jewish stuff. They keep following their Jewish law. They keep eating their kosher foods. They keep doing their—and they keep going to this temple, and they worship one god, Yahweh, and they refuse to worship all the Greek gods, and they won't build a gymnasium, and they just won't play ball. 
And so one of their kings decides to supplant the high priest, who is a godly man, and to remove him and get him murdered, and to put his own man in the temple, who then builds a gymnasium, a Greek gymnasium attached to the temple, and leads all the priests and the youth of Israel into it, and they begin to Hellenize everybody. They get rid of their Jewish clothing. They start dressing like Greeks. Over time, all of the all of the things are stolen out of the temple, all the money, all of the gold, everything is taken away that is used to worship God. Increasingly, it becomes not cool, politically incorrect, to behave Jewishly. Even the priests don't behave Jewishly. And there is beginning to be an erasure of Jewishness among their people. They're just becoming Greeks because their clergy is leading them into it because they've been bought off by this king. And there's some Jewish people, especially like in the hill countryside, you might call them the fundamentalists, right? And they're like, we're not doing it. We're not doing this. We're not doing it. And they don't do it. They start to, to rebel. It's not a full revolt yet, but they start to rebel. And the king of this empire ha- loses an enormous amount of faith because he lays siege to Alexandria in Egypt, and he fails to take the city. Which if you're a king, and you lay siege to a city like that, and you fail to take it, you can end up murdered. Because you're, it, it's a huge sign of weakness. And so as he's going back to Syria, he's passing through Israel, and there's a kind of a revolt happening there that he can put down and show what a big, strong guy he is, right? So to do it, he goes to Jerusalem, and he murders 80,000 people. He, he, he like cuts women open. He throws children off of the wall. He burns part of the city. He goes into the temple of God, tears down the Holy of Holies, sets up a huge statue to the idol Zeus, and sacrifices pigs on the altar to desecrate everything and to destroy Judaism once and for all. Right? And then he sends his minions into the countryside to go to all the synagogues and to make the men who lead the synagogues make sacrifices to the pagan gods or die. And he, he pulls this—one of, of his men pulls this old man, Matthias, up to this place in the synagogue where the holy place is, where the Torah is read, and he says, sacrifice this pig or die. And he puts a knife into this guy's hand. And this guy's like in his 70s. And he takes a knife and he sticks it into the Greek guy's stomach and cuts out his guts and throws them on the ground. He said, I will never do this. And he has seven sons, and one of those sons is a guy named Judas who later would be called Judas the Maccabean, which is a word that means the hammer. So these seven sons start with guerrilla warfare because they don't have any weapons at all. So they're like, first we got to kill some Greeks to get some weapons, and then we can kill some Greeks with those weapons. And so they start just kind of like ambushing people. It's like, the fir- it's like the middle of the movie Braveheart, right? They ambush some people, they get some weapons. They use some weapons to ambush some other people, they get some weapons, until an army gets rallied to them, and they fight like five super decisive battles where they're outnumbered as much as 10 to 1, and they annihilate the Greek armies. They just completely destroy them. It's like, because every, t- every way into Jerusalem, you have to go through the hill country. The hill country is full of choke points. This is these guys' backyards. And all these Greek armies are conscripts. They don't even want to be there. And these very devout Jewish men who are fighting for survival with the Greeks' own weapons come charging down at these choke points and just annihilate them for five incredibly decisive victories until they take Jerusalem, they take the Temple Mount, they take the Temple Citadel, and they rededicate the Temple. They tear down the whole altar, and they completely rebuild it from scratch because pigs were sacrificed on it. They tear down the idol of Zeus, and they rip it out of the temple and destroy it, and they hang up the curtains again, and they relight the light of God in the candelabra. 
And for eight days, they celebrate and they dedicate the temple. And Judas institutes Hanukkah, the feast of dedication. There is no mourning. There is no sorrow. There is only celebrating the dedication of God to us and us rededicating ourselves to God and the identity that he gave us. No matter what it takes, no matter what we have to sacrifice, we will be his, and he is dedicated to us. And Judas became like the Abraham Lincoln of his people, who fought the decisive war for their unity and identity, who dedicated the battleground on which it was, and who gave them a forward-moving identity so that almost everybody in the nation looked back and respected him, such that of the 12 people that were Jesus' disciples, two of them were named Judas. We think of it as like, yeah, Judas is scary. He's a terrible pig. He's the guy who betrayed. Yes. But almost every mama wanted to name one of her boys Judas. Because Judas the hammer was the, was the Moses, was the Abraham Lincoln of his people. And so, in the Feast of Dedication, right, Jesus is walking in the temple. This is the very temple. This is literally the very spot that Judas' men walked into and tore down that altar and rededicated the temple to God. And they come to Jesus in that place, and they say, during Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, and they say to him, are you the hero, conqueror, Messiah we've been waiting for? They're under a new empire, the Romans. Are you that person? Are you that one, right? And you see, in some ways, the way John is using this is he's saying, one of the great misunderstandings that everybody has to deal with every human being in every generation is, what does dedication really look like? What does it mean to be dedicated to anything, especially to God? And in what way is God dedicated to us? Because the main figure of God's dedication to all of his people and all of redemption is this mysterious figure, the Messiah, the anointed one that brings victory, right? And they say to him, are you the Messiah? And so sometimes John 10 is a little bit of a weird passage, right? And you're like, why is Jesus so obscure like this? Why doesn't he just tell them plainly? And the answer is this. What they're asking is, are you the second Judas? Are you the one who is going to kill all these Romans and throw their bodies in the valley and rededicate the temple and give us back our country? Are you that man? Are you going to be the one who does it? And so Jesus is like, ah, this question isn't as easy to answer as you think it is. Two things about being dedicated. The first is that dedication, what it means, has to start with the right vision. It has to start with the right vision. Because if you say, are you this or are you committed to that, it, it, like, it really depends on what you mean by it, right? Like if I ask you, are you a Christian? I mean, I wish that meant one thing to all of us, but it doesn't. Right? If I asked you if you were a Democrat or a Republican, right? If I asked you if you like bread, I mean, there's so many things that I could ask you. Like, are you, are you for this? Do you like this? Are you even dedicated to this? Are you dedicated to being a husband or a father or a, like a, a good child or like any of those things? Like, you have to know, what, you have to have a vision for what that is and mean something by it. Now, that, that is not a pedantic point. Listen, we have such shallow understandings about the things we say we're committed to. They're more like knee-jerk reactions than they are real pictures in our mind that are stable and built on something clear, right? 
And so Jesus is talking to these guys, and it's just not, it's not as simple as, are you the Messiah? Because Messiah means something really different to them than it means to him. They are no doubt during Hanukkah picturing a second Judas, and that's really not what Jesus is doing, right? Look at what he says. He says, um, they said, like, tell us if you're the Messiah. And he said, look, I did tell you, you don't believe. And he says, the, the miracles that I do testify about me. Testify is literally, they literally, they tell you like somebody in a court of law who's being called on to accurately describe something. He says, literally the miracles I'm doing are like somebody under oath specifically saying exactly what I am. And if you looked at the miracles and the teachings that I gave surrounding them, you would know exactly who I think I am. Because he, you see, he can't say he's not the Messiah because he is the Messiah, but he also can't say that he is the Messiah because they'll completely misunderstand what he's saying. And he's saying, why don't you just listen to what I said and what I did? Because then you'll know exactly what I am. And then he says, I, I and the Father are one because you see the point of his vision? Jesus' vision is not defeating the Romans or winning at this game. Because you see, Judas did it win. Not finally. Right? Jesus is saying his vision is that he and the Father are one. Now, mainly what he's saying here is one in purpose. But the reason they're so reliably one in purpose is because they're one in being. They are literally one. But you see, Jesus isn't just making that point because he's going to push it a lot further in just a minute. One way you can summarize it would be this. If you guys can afford it here. Um, if, if you're going to try to make what Jesus is saying here really literal, it would be something like this. You guys are dedicated to a vision of what you want God to do for you through like some general king winner or something like that. And I'm dedicated to God himself and what he wants to do through a shepherd's son. You see, here, here's, here's what I'll say about this, okay? We live in inc an incredibly self-involved time. Because we're so wealthy— and because we have a society that takes a maximum amount of responsibility off of ourselves, mainly because we're, we're taking, expending whatever we want ourselves and putting the debt of that on future generations, right? This is how all empires fall apart, right? They spend money they don't have so they can live like they want to so that other people will later pay the bills, right? They live like this, and when you do that, you live decadently, irresponsibly, self-centeredly. We live in one of those moments. I don't know if you realize this. One of these moments of decadent, wealthy decline in which we're living on debt. People who live in times like that are incredibly self-centered, incredibly self-focused, incredibly self-important. They're not really thinking of the future. They're often not having children. Their birth rates usually drop. Look at America's birth rates over the last 50 years. We live in one of those moments. We think everything is about us. And so whatever God is, whoever God is, whatever God is doing, he had better be doing something like in line with what I want him to do. And for some of us, it's, it's, it's like direct, like we're really mad at God, or we're really, up, like, we're like, God, if you do this, I'll do that. Like, we're not sophisticated enough to realize that's silly. Most of us have a more sophisticated version of it where we're in our gut. We're just kind of like, God should be doing X. God should be doing this. He should be kicking the Romans' butts. He should be beating the Republicans. He should be, you know, like making my kids mind. He should be like making sure I don't lose my job, or that if I do, I get a better one. God should be doing X, Y, Z. And the problem is, is that when you think that, you can never see or hear what God is actually doing. 
Because the philosophy God believes about the world is not compatible with our natural self-focused ones. And so it's not so much that God is so angry with you about your self-focused philosophy. He's been dealing with people who, who think like that since the foundation of human beings, okay? He doesn't take it that personally. You're not his first kid, you know what I mean? Like, he's like, he, he can work with it. Like, he's, he's got to get you where you got to go, but he's like, he's not overly upset about it. Does that make sense? The problem is that he just, you can't understand what he's doing if your vision is that vision. You're in, so Jesus is like, here's the problem, you guys. The problem is not what I'm doing. I'm actually not being obscure. Like, they're like, Jesus, why don't you just talk plainly? He's like, listen, there's nothing plainer than me making a blind guy see. Don't you see there's nothing plainer than that? I can't speak plainer. The problem is, is that you want me to say a certain thing that I don't mean. Right? There's a lot of you, that's how you feel about God. You think that God is like very obscure. Why can't he be more direct? Why doesn't God just tell me stuff? Why can't I? Why, like, why is he? Here's the, I understand we all want to have, experience the, the immediate presence of God that's so powerful that it's self-interpreting that it will order the rest of our lives beautifully. I understand that. For whatever reason, in God's redemption, he is the hidden God in some way for our formation and for our redemption. Okay? I don't have all the answers for exactly why he does it that way. But here's what I will say. In the scriptures, most of what we don't get about God or we don't get in terms of what we really need is actually because we're not, li we, we're not listening for it, right? I mean, have you, have you ever had this experience with your kids where you, um, you tell them something really important about life about 170 times and they go to some stupid kid's house and their big sister says it and they come home and they're like, you wouldn't believe what Sarah said. It was so deep. And so real. And they tell you like this thing that you've literally said to them in a hundred different ways, a hundred times, like a hundred times. And you want to just wring their stupid little necks, you know? And yet, you're also kind of glad that they got it. You know, you're kind of like, well, I mean, if you want to credit Sarah, that's fine, as long as you get it, you know? Um, if you're a wise parent who tries to teach your kid and your kid has the normal hormonal dynamics of youth, this will happen. Every, like every, to every, with every kid. And the thing is, is like, it's because they're just not listening for it. If a person is not in a headspace to listen for something, if their heart isn't really open, they will never get it. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says sometimes, he's like, look, you just shouldn't throw your pearls before swine. Like if people can't receive it, giving them something incredibly valuable is just a waste. In fact, sometimes it confirms them in what they don't believe. Like, I could preach an incredible sermon, and if your kid is sitting there angry at church, no matter what I say or how I say it, what I say will encourage them to be angry about church and God. And they don't realize it's 100% about their attitude. And probably a couple things I say, they're stupid. Because I'm a man, right? But instead of hearing what God wants to say, they're going to see something else. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is saying is, like, this is always the problem, you guys. This is always the problem with dedication. What matters about dedication is to be dedicated to the right vision. And the right vision is God himself. And because of that, that's why you have to die to yourself. Not because you don't need to have a self. You have to be a really stable self to stand up against sin and to do what's right. But you have to, you have to be second. You have to be like the son to his father knows exactly his submitted place, but is an entire belonging and completely trusts his will. He's like, I and the Father are one. That's what it means to be the Messiah. To be his special one, always actually doing his real will. 
And I'm not worried about your stuff. I'm not even worried about me dying. All I'm worried about is being a true son or daughter. And what that's going to mean, what, we, what we're reading through John 10 is to not be a king, but to be a shepherd. Look at this next slide if we can advance them. And that is part of the reason here, if you just look at, just look at the big picture for a second. There are, pla- are there places in the Bible where God sends his people to completely kill their enemies? Is that in the Bible? It absolutely is in the Bible. Yes. Is God wrong? No. We can argue about that. That's one of the difficult questions, right? The morality of war and the morality of religious war, especially in the Bible. That's for a Sunday class. Paxton, put that down, okay? I heard his bioethics class is good. Maybe he'd do another good apologetics class, right? Okay, so, but think about the big picture. Is that God's vision? No, it's not God's vision at all. God's vision is always that Abraham would be blessed to be a blessing, that he would be, create a nation of king priests to reach the world, that the gospel, it says in Isaiah, would go out through the suffering servant all the way to the islands, that the, that the glory of the Lord would shine in the entire world, that the government of all peoples would be upon the shoulders of his Messiah, that everybody would be invited in and drawn, and that the people who stand before the throne of God in the end would be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It is the exception where the nations rage against the very people of God and seek to annihilate them. And in those moments, God raises up a standard and a weapon to fight back so that his people wouldn't be annihilated from the face of the earth. And then the swords are to be beaten into plowshares because we seek to live at peace. And you see, Jesus has come not to be a second Judas. Listen, Jesus was probably celebrating the victory of Judas as an act of God. If not for Judas and his father and these people— there would have been no Jews for Jesus to come to. Do you understand? They would have been annihilated. The people of God, like when, when Jews say today, listen, this is, it may sound political to you, but you need to understand this. Even if it's not true today, it's true historically, okay? Historically, over and over and over and over again, God's people, the Jewish people, have been a tiny little group of people in the earth that different nations of all different kinds of different ethnicities with different ideologies at different moments have tried to annihilate. Europeans, Arabs, Seleucid Turks, Seleucids, and on and on and on. Just like, you know, these people, Romans, are an inconvenience and we just need to get rid of them. Let's just kill them. Nazis. Stalinists. I mean, you can just go on and on. They're always on the verge of being wiped out. And they know that, and Judas knew that, and that was a moment where they had to fight. But you see, Jesus comes along, and he's like, listen, what you need to understand is, and he doesn't say it, but this is, he says this throughout all the rest of the other Gospels. Okay, just read the Gospels. He's like, look, the problem here is not the Romans. Don't you see? The problem's not the Romans. The Romans aren't ruining your ability to follow God. The Romans aren't making it so you can't shine a light. The Romans are taking your money. The Romans are making your life hard. But where's the real corruption in this country? He's like, it's in your kings who are in the line of Judas. Judas brother became king, and his sons became king. And then this guy Herod married one of the daughters and became king. And then that guy decided to kill some of his own sons, where Romans said it's better to be that man's dog than his son. So corrupt was the kingdom in Judah. And they weren't Romans. 
They were Jews. And then he turns to the temple and he's like, the corruption here is unbearable. The corruption in the teaching of the Torah that the Seleucids outlawed. It was a capital offense to have a Torah. And Jesus is like, okay, now that's not the problem. You got Torahs everywhere. You all memorize the Torah. You say the Torah. You're all, you, your Hebrew is fantastic. But then you come up with all these legalistic rules so that nobody has to actually obey the teachings of the Torah. It's crazy. The corruption is from you. And then he's like, and you're so turned in on yourself. God has brought the nations to you. If you would win over these Romans, the Romans would win the world. The strongest empire is on top of you. Don't you see? This is actually an opportunity. It was always an opportunity. But you won't be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, like all of the prophets say. Jesus is like, the line of Judas has become corrupt. We have become corrupt. You are corrupt. It's not about your overlords. It's about you. You aren't dedicated to God. How far off the mark is that now? I mean, emotionally, who do you want to blame? Watch your cable news. Who do, who do you want to blame? Who are you taught to blame? Who are the new Sadducees sitting in their little chairs telling you who to hate so they can be corrupt, so that you can be their little pawns? That they would teach you who to be dedicated to so that you're on the right team, so that in your heart there's something else you're more dedicated to than being God's son or daughter who is a shepherd. What king are you waiting for in this world? Because we're not that kind of people. And we're not going to be. And if you don't want to hear it, what Jesus would say is, my sheep hear my voice. You don't hear my— Listen, I can't tell you how many young people I've heard, I've talked to, especially ones who get connected with charismatic Christians who are awesome, who say, Nick, I just—I don't even know if I'm a Christian because Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice. And I don't—I just don't hear God's voice. Like, I pray and I ask God to speak to me and to tell me who to marry or where to go to school or, like, how to serve him or does he want me to be a missionary? And I don't feel like God tells me what to do. And I feel like the Bible says that his sheep hear his voice. And I don't feel like I hear his voice. That is not what this verse means at all. There is nowhere in the Bible that teaches— that it is normative and necessary for you to hear impressions from God or the Holy Spirit spoken into your spirit for you to be an authentic Christian. Now, does that happen? Yes. Are there special spiritual gifts through which it often happens? Yes. But is it normative? Does it authenticate your faith? No, not at all. What authenticates your faith is, will you hear God speak the truth through his Christ when he says what he's really about? Are you dedicated to God or are you dedicated to something else? Are you willing to hear his voice when it comes in every form? Because in this, it's the Torah that he's referring to. You guys won't believe the written word of God. So if, you're, if you feel that way, if you're hurt by that, listen, that is not what this passage means. You need to be free of that. And then fall under the harder hammer of the question of, are you actually dedicated to God? And if you are dedicated to God, just put your hand to something good that you seem shaped for. You have one life, you're going to die, no one's going to remember you. It's not that big a deal what you put your hand to. If you can give yourself to somebody, 
do it. Have children. If you can find somebody adequate, if you can put your hand to something that helps other people's lives, do it. Serve the people around you that Jesus would call your neighbors. Live like a loving son or daughter of God who shepherds those that you can guide well and then die like a Christian. You don't need 15 minutes of fame on Instagram or TikTok or any of those stupid vanity-based wormholes. You need to learn how to be a real human being who knows what it means to be a son of God. And if you do that, you will be free even if the Romans rule you. Now, secondly, and briefly, there we go. What Jesus is saying is, the goal here, to hear God's voice, is that we all must be sons, and that is a gender-inclusive sons, sons and daughters of God. And what that means, too, is, the, be, be shepherds. And you might say, well, Nick, Jesus is the shepherd. Okay, Jesus says he is the great shepherd. He's the over-shepherd, is what, in 1 Peter 5, when Paul is talking to the shepherds of the church who are elders, he doesn't say, don't ever call yourself shepherds, because Jesus is the shepherd. He says, no. Jesus is the over-shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd over you little shepherds. So you need to get your butts in line as shepherds doing what the big shepherd wants, right? Similarly, to be a son of God means to be in the image of and to act like the Father. And you're like, Nick, how do you even know that it means the Son means act like? Okay, first, that's all it ever meant in the ancient world. But listen to Jesus' blasphemy here, right? They pick up stones to kill him, and he's, they're like, He's like, why, what you gonna, which, which miracle are you going to kill me for? And they're like, it's not the miracles. It's your blasphemy. He's like, oh, you want blasphemy? Let me give you some blasphemy, right? And he says, Jesus answered, is it not written in your law, meaning all of your holy writings? I have said you are God's small g. Okay, that is not, that's not how you, why would you handle it this way? It's kind of like, oh yeah, you think I and the, I and the Father are one. You think that's blasphemy? I'll give you blasphemy. You see, what, what Jesus is saying to these guys, what he's going to say to them is this. Your problem is not that I'm going too far. It's that you, you don't even dream of going far enough. Right? There's this writer, um, psychological writer, that said one time, and he said this about America in the 1990s. It's infinitely more true now. He said, one of the reasons why people can't have real relationships is because everybody is so scared of somebody being selfish, and they're always calling each other selfish. If anybody sticks their head up, he's like, and they're not, they're not afraid at all of not having a self and knowing who you are and knowing what to stand up for and who to be, even if nobody else will do it, even if they call you selfish. And when you're big about one and not about the other, what happens is everybody becomes immature because everybody can poke at everybody else when everybody stands up for anything right and call them selfish and get them to back down so that everything can move towards the most angry and immature people. He said, be careful about when people call you arrogant or when they call you selfish. They might be right. You should start with that. You should start with they might be right, right? But then you need to ask yourself, are you doing God's will and somebody's trying to talk you down? Right? If he took you out of it, would it still be the right thing? If some other person were there and they were going to get whatever glory there was or it was their job to make the right decision, would they make the same decision as you if they were doing God's will? So then he says this. It said, you are gods. If he who called them gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be set aside, what about the one whom the Father sets apart as his very own ascent to the world? Okay. He's quoting a psalm, Psalm 82, which is a really kind of interesting psalm because it's really hard to figure out exactly what it means. Okay. And this is Psalm 82, 1a. This is the whole psalm. 
This isn't part of it. This is the whole thing. Okay, he says this. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Now, it's not 100% clear what that means. It could be the angels and demons, right? It could be the, the gods in this context could also be like people who are rulers in different societies, right? There's a, in Psalm 2, it's, God says to the person who is being enthroned as the king of Israel, he said, I am your, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, right? So the king is God's son. Does that make sense? Here, the metaphor is not son, but God, small g. You are gods. And then he says this, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So law is like a, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Or sing louder. We're not sure exactly what it means. And then he says, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Now, more literally, that's translated, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Okay, here's what that's saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's saying. He's saying, do you remember that Psalm, Psalm 82, where it says, you are gods? What does that mean, do you think? Because it's in the Word of God. Part of the reason you're getting ready to stone me is because you think I'm speaking against the Word of God. So before we do that, let's just figure out what this piece of the Word of God actually says and means. Now, <clears throat> angels and demons don't die like mere men. Men and women die like mere men. Right? And this could refer to rulers, but it doesn't specify. He rules over the gods, or those who have dominion. Right? And then, the ones who have dominion clearly are not taking dominion or doing it properly, right? Instead of being on the side of the weak and the broken and the hurting and the people who are being attacked, they're on the side of the wicked. And so they're helping the wicked in corruption rather than standing against the wicked in the power of the authority of whatever stewardship that they have to bring about what's in the green, defending the cause of the weak and the poor and the oppressed and so on, right? And then he says, <clears throat> these people, these gods— they don't know anything. They don't know anything. They walk about in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. What he's saying is this. The people who rule on varying levels of humanity, because they follow and support the wicked instead of standing up for what's right, they are in darkness. They can't see the light in the festival of light that ends Sukkot, and the celebration of light, which is the inbreaking of liberty, which signifies the Feast of Dedication. They walk around in darkness. They don't see. They don't, they don't hear my voice. They're not my sheep. And because of that, the foundations of the earth are shaken, meaning the whole world is coming apart from the bottom up because it's not being ruled correctly from the top down. Right? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. People say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, Rabbi, get them to stop saying that. That's basically blasphemy. And what does Jesus say? If they don't say this, what will happen? The rocks themselves will cry out. What is he? That's a metaphor, right? That's not literally true. I mean, maybe it would be literally true because that was literally the Messiah moment. But what he's saying is saying, if, you, if, if people don't recognize properly the top down, the bottom up will revolt. Now, that's true for democracy. That's true in everything. But it's true even more spiritually. And what, God, what he is saying is saying, listen— you have no idea what you are. You are a bearer of God's image, and in your life is some realm 
of rule in which you have the right and authority to act. You are the ones to whom the word of God came. You are God's small g. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't mean you can make the weather or live forever or ride on the clouds because he says in the very next line, and look, you can just die like mere men. Whatever that means to be God's doesn't mean in majesty and power. What it means in is the right rule under the God for whom the nations is his inheritance. Everything in all the nations, including in Madison, is God's inheritance. It's, it belongs to him. It's deeded to him. It's willed to him. He made it. It's, it's his. Other people behave like it's not his. But you're his, and everybody's his, and everything is his. And the nations rage, and they walk in darkness, and the very foundations are shaken because you who are God's small g don't act like it. Not like you're self-important and can make everything happen like Zeus, but like the God who is a shepherd over his people who cares for the thing in front of him because he has the authority to do it and nobody can tell him he can't. Right? If you stand up before a gun and they shoot you, you are not a God that you won't die. You will die. But if you stand up before a state that rules the world and they say, stand down in seeking justice, Stand down in helping the oppressed. Stand down in telling the truth. Stand down in sending the gospel to the nations. And you, you have the right as a God, small g, to say no. I will not and I must not. Because I am a God to whom the word of God came and it cannot be broken. I am a son under the true and greater son. The very one he set apart and dedicated to himself. Get it? dedicated to himself, has dedicated me to himself. And Jesus showed his dedication, not by killing his enemies as the wrong kind of God or son, but he died to win his enemies like the right kind of God, small g, almost like he was a God who was merely a man. But as the God-man, he could actually die to redeem the world and save them from their sins and show us what a son, small s, God, small g would do and who we were meant to be. Let me end with this. Last year, at Christmas time, I preached a sermon about whether or not Jesus was born on December 25th because most, most Christians are like, yeah, it was probably some Roman holiday. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I went over how actually the, the historical evidence for Jesus being born on December 25th is actually way better than people think. Um, he almost was certainly born within that week. Um, and you can actually take biblical passages and line them up time-wise, and you can nail that down pretty close, right? Um, and so some people say, ha, pagan holidays, right? So he, it wasn't just like copying like Sol Invictus or something like that. Here's the thing that's actually more interesting about dating the birth of Jesus. If Herod died in 4 BC, the most likely year that Jesus was born was 5 BC. In 5 BC— if you lay out the days of Hanukkah, the birth of Jesus falls in the Feast of Dedication. During the days of the Feast of Dedication, when God saved his people and rededicated them to himself, one whom God set apart from eternity past to be his very own, to be completely dedicated to him as his son, and to be the God among men to show men how to live up to being in the image of God— came and died to dedicate all people to himself. Yeah. 
And what that is supposed to do for us is to see, like on the first Hanukkah, the first Feast of Dedication, how much God is willing to do for his own. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm not here to save people. They're going to die serving me. He said, no, I'm going to save the people who believe in me. Those who are mine, I will give them eternal life and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. They cannot lose. They cannot die. They cannot be defeated. But he doesn't say, because they're going to kill their enemies. He says that we're going to walk as sons and daughters, like those to whom the word of God came, who are God's small g, who have the authority to be shepherds in the earth, even if ungodly men kill us, because we are not living in the exceptional moment of the sword, but in the broader visional moment of the good news going to all people for their redemption and for their peace. That's why the coming of the Son, it says, that he would be, that the angels blessed us saying, peace on earth. Right? Peace on earth. Not because a new Judas brings the sword and subjugates all the people warring against us. What's the next line? Peace on earth because of what? Because of goodwill towards men. Because men would learn how to love each other. And ultimately, Rome was defeated because Rome was won over peacefully, even as murderers, by people who were willing to be shepherds rather than conquerors because they were devoted to being sons and daughters of God. Jesus was born into it. He died for it. We could be born again into it and die for it. He gives his sheep eternal life and no one can snatch them out of his hands. Let's pray. Lord, whether or not I achieved this being a Christmas sermon, I pray that it would be helpful to everybody who heard. I pray that something in it would lead us to want to be more dedicated to you and to your vision of what you're doing and that we would be people through whom um, there is peace or more peace on earth and that goodwill towards men would flow from us. That we um, would not have a small-mindedness protecting our church, even in the city, or even protecting our politics or our, or our other commitments, but that we would be a people who care to reach the nations, but that we would have an unbreaking backbone of being gods, of being sons of God and shepherds who know exactly who we're supposed to be and who do it in such a way as to care for others for their well-being. We trust in your promise of eternal life that no one can snatch us from you. We pray that you'd help us to be truly dedicated in Jesus' name. Amen.